Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'll tell you this, it's the incursion of the FBI into this that makes it a much different story than and your I, typical scale. I don't scandal. know how I feel about that, Dave. Like, I'm almost, we don't have other things to worry about. Man, I, you're, you're, you're never going to hear me cape for the FBI. I'm still salty over sending letters to Dr. King telling him to kill himself. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to former Georgetown basketball captain and current sports broadcaster Monica McNutt to speak about sports, the media, the NCAA, the Dallas Mavericks, and a movie you might have heard of called Black Panther. Let's jump into it right away with Monica McNutt. Monica McNutt, I, I did want to speak to you about the, the state of play because, like, like to say what you said like before we start recording about like you crushed it all, met Georgetown, and now you are breaking into this world as a journalist, it's... as a black woman, and right now if people could see you, they would see that you're basically rubbing your temples with your <laughs> fingers. It's crazy, Dave. I think for me, having been an athlete, you approach things one way. X, Y, Z amount of hours in the gym, I can hit the shot, game comes, knock the shot down. It's a mm-hmm. very simple formula. And, and when I can, you knock the shot down, you get the props. Boom. Okay, we simple won. Simple as that. Keep it moving. The formula is not so simple professionally. And I can remember being in grad school at Georgetown, and I love George Solomon, and I just felt like, what? I went to Georgetown? Like, I own this area. I'm going to get a job. I'm oh, good. Oh, at Philip Merrill. At Philip Merrill, yeah. right? And so I look back now, not... And laugh at myself, but there is a certain naivete about youth, right? So having been in the business now going on five, going into six years, um, it's such a gamble. And there is no formula necessarily. I think I've done great work. I got off to a solid start being able to land my first gig in D.C., can but, you just go through your resume real quick, like what you've done in the last five, six years? So I graduated Georgetown 2011 two-time NCAA tournament squad. I went and got my master's at the University of Maryland, Philip Merrill College of Journalism, 2013. I worked in Prince George's County Community Television for six months, and I landed a job at News Channel 8, WJLA, as a multimedia journalist covering sports. They threw in a sports desk on the News Channel 8 side for me. Right. I was there for a year, got laid off, down for about a month and a half, and then went to the American Sports Network, which was Sinclair's college sports project, mm-hmm. where we focused on college football, basketball, and hockey, the A-10 and Conference USA being our larger conferences. But we had, think of us for football as the non-Power 5 schools. Right. Um, And then your Cinderella's come tournament time. Like, Mm -hmm. I actually called that Middle Tennessee, Michigan State upset. Like, was there, called it, no surprises. Um, That project, the plug gets pulled. I was there for two years, also laid off again. So I've been laid off twice in the span of three years. Um, And now we're, in March, it'll be a year since that project went kaput. I've been freelancing, did some things with BN Sports Network um, for college football season, 
getting back into the writing and just kind of being creative and thinking about how I can continue to use my skill set to stay in the business that I love. But Dave, I don't have to tell you, I'm not 26 anymore. I can't stay on my parents' insurance and life is real. So you yeah. also look at how do these skills translate to something that maybe puts me back into a nine to five in a school building as a communications director. And then I can enjoy sports from a different angle again. So do you have a time limit on this for yourself? Like, are you saying I'm going to give myself till I'm 30? I'm going to give myself till I'm... I'm going to give myself till I have had enough. Right okay. now, it's just me. There's nobody looking for me in terms of being fit or any of the other things that come with major relationships in your life. Um, and I so appreciate my parents because they've encouraged me to chase. This is your season to chase. They would hate yeah. to see me fall into a job because I have bills. And honestly, my overhead is super low. Shout out to being able to bounce a basketball and paying off all my debts. Um, <laughs> and I got to do a shout out to just so longtime listeners of the show, if the last name sounded familiar, Monica McNutt, her pops is... Kevin McNutt, who's a longtime co-host, dear friend of mine, on the show. Now, you mentioned Kevin to me, or dad, as it were, <laughs> um, before the show, because you said people like your dad and myself, like you wonder if we gas you up too much, if you think that, um, that like, because both of us have been like, oh my God, you're so talented at this, you know, it's going to happen for you, but it's like the time goes by and it gets super frustrating. And let me just tell you that I, I've lived that life too, and I'm almost 20 years older than you, and I've, I've absolutely lived that life of mm -hmm. uh, for years and years and years. People being like, "When's your show gonna be on? Mm -hmm. Like, when's your TV show?" And some of it is like being at peace with, "Whoa, I'm making a living out of doing sports, and that's something that so many people would run through a brick wall to do, and getting joy and satisfaction from that." And the other is just being like, you know, like I'm. Like what Stefan Marbury said when LeBron James made fun of his shoe and he said, I'd rather own than be owned. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. just this idea of like, well, you know, I'm doing this living by my wits. Like I don't have Disney behind me to make this okay. Right, right, right. And there's a satisfaction from that too. I will say now more than ever, the idea of it not being about the destination, but the journey has resonated in a way that I think only experience can teach you. Yes. Um, the last time we talked, you had mentioned the woodshed, and I, I really, that was such a great analogy because that's where I am right now. There are skills that I'm equipped with that may or may not apply to sports, and maybe this is the push I need to really get into what can I own, what can I put my signature on. Um, I question whether I have the clout, but I also know, to mess up a Maya Angelou quote, that nothing works unless you do it. Mm. So there is this space in my head where I have to decide, look, are you going to be fearful and wonder? Or do we look back and say, well, we threw everything we could and this was what stuck at the wall. Can I um, tell the listeners out there what you meant by the woodshedding thing? Certainly. Just so, so they're, they're privy to this conversation. It's so interesting. Like the phrase, taking somebody to the woodshed, people assume that means that you're taking somebody to, to beat their behind. But the phrase woodshedding actually goes back to Mississippi Delta blues music. And this idea that if you could not play your guitar the way others could play your guitar, you were expected to go into the woodshed and practice and learn to love it in isolation before you came out again. And that was called woodshedding. It's, it's just in slang for just like being like, I'm going to learn my craft. So if and when people come for me, I'm going to be so ready and so on point that I'll have my own proposals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it for me. I think it's an interesting time to be a part of the business, particularly for me as a woman of color, short with short natural hair, don't fit the size to whatever you think you're supposed to see when you see a woman talking about sports. While I think the guard is absolutely changing, 
I also know that it's tough to let go of the old regime. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily going to present things the traditional way that we've known over the past 15, 20 years. But I think that's okay. And so you have to find a place where you can be true to yourself first. And mm-hmm. then it works. Otherwise. What does the Jamel Hill story tell you? Because you have this case of somebody who was trying to do it her way in so many ways, was hosting Sports Center, now is out of Sports Center, and they have her writing. It's her choice that she's doing this, but I just I find it sort of bitterly ironic that she's now working at the Undefeated, which is like the black politics site for ESPN, as if, oh, this is where you belong, not as the face of Sports Center. That is a very nuanced conversation for me because I don't know that the six should have ever been the six. Mm-hmm. And not from a place of hating on. I love Jamel. I've had a chance to meet her in person. I think she's one of the most genuine people that you'll ever meet. When when I can remember the buzz coming around the six, and it, I think I got an NABJ Sports Task Force email, and it was like, woo, way to go, mm-hmm. uh, Jamel and Michael. Like, you guys have been in part of NABJ since you were kids. We're so proud of you. And I remember thinking, how's this going to work? NEBJ, the National Association of Black, Black Journalists. Journalists. I'm like, how is this going to work? Okay, cool. Um, we launch it. First of all, Dave, on a just consumer habit level, as much as I love them, it still was not appointment television for me. And so you're far more likely to me to get an audience that just wants to drag it in the dirt show up on time to drag it in the dirt sufficiently as opposed to folks that actually support. I mean, I could turn it on while I'm in my house doing other things for the sake of the ratings, but at six o'clock I'm out and about, I'm making it happen. Right. So I was like, okay, well this is cool. Then I also had this double consciousness of, is this a ploy by ESPN on black people? Because I had a friend who actually went into, he found an article, I don't remember where it was, but we were discussing it and he was saying, when you look at the folks that are last to cut their cable, for whatever reason, black folks have been. Shout out to my dad, not leave his cable package either. So there's this idea if you tilt the viewing or the programming to something that they want to see, they'll hold on tight. Eh. So in the midst of the six, we also have various issues that are black issues coming to the forefront, particularly Jamel and President Trump. Uh, Colin Kaepernick. There's no major push from ESPN that really says we support people of color and diverse conversations outside of chit-chatting, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, okay, you got these two hosts that are supposed to be on your marquee show, but when there's a riff and she says something about the president, you don't really have her back at all. Right, or says something about Jerry Jones in the NFL, right. even though what she said was when, when, when the Greg Hardy domestic violence incident happened. I know you know this, yep. but this still boggles my mind. And I believe that was 2015. You had a host of the NFL show on ESPN, a a white woman, list the companies that do business with yeah. Dallas yeah. on prime time mm-hmm. and basically lay out for people what they should boycott. Uh, Jamel just sent out a, a, a Twitter a tweet just saying, "Hey, that's how change happens." Not even endorsing a boycott, right. but being like, "Yeah, that's how change happens." So Wendy Nix does that, which I think is phenomenal. But my dad argued that if Jamel had said the same thing she tweeted on her show, there's no problem because you say it versus tweet it. We're getting into very murky waters there. I'm not going to jump up and down, but we bring it all back to say, I don't. I felt like the six was just Sports Center with Jamel and Michael. There was nothing original about it. You lost what was in his and hers in terms of them really being able to have authentic conversations. And the six is for a much larger audience than those that are tuning in at their one o'clock, 12 o'clock slot, whatever it was for his and hers. 
I'll give my um, take. I think at the beginning there was a real effort to try to create a kind of a bridge between the his and hers content and there would be some conversation and being a sports center. There was an effort to try to do it differently. They actually didn't lose audience. There were so many people trying to root for them to fail. And I think precisely because they were trying to do it differently. I mean, the parodies of things like A Different World. Mm -hmm. Those were awesome. Those were amazing. And, and just the fact that they would But does even... everybody get that though, Dave? Well, that's part of the thing is I can, I can definitely speak to people on, you know, like on my... My, my wife's side of the family, like who, who were like, yeah, I don't like that show because they felt like they were left behind on it. Now, the response on one level could be from ESPN being very stubborn, being like, hey, if you're left behind, catch up. But that level of support was just never there from ESPN. Right. And that's part of the problem. And as the show went on, it became more and more, for lack of a better term, and I know this is a loaded term, but it just became more and more neutered. That's all it is to it, mm -hmm. to the point of which they changed the backdrop of the show. So you didn't see Ali and... Booyah. And you didn't even have a picture of them shaking hands with Barack Obama because apparently, and I know this from somebody behind the scenes, that was seen as too political. They're shaking hands with the President of the United States. That's too political? That's mm -hmm. wild to me. Mm -hmm. And now, so, so take that, and then you have to think to yourself, okay, well, if is then the only thing because this speaks to your ambitions is like is then the is the undefeated like the only choice is the only choice michael smith just doing sports and jamel going to the undefeated or is there another way and the one person who laid out another way in a column that i thought was really brilliant and i don't usually compliment this person effusively on this show but it was bill simmons formerly bspn and the ringer when everything was going down with jamel bill said you know, with, with Mike Greenberg leaving Mike and Mike, the answer should have been staring them in the face like Jamel and Michael Smith three hours in the morning leading right into Dan Levitard with his quirky take on everything. That then becomes six hours of really good radio. And instead you go with Golik and Wingo in the morning on ESPN and it's just that same... I mean, un somehow it's even it more though. it's even more white bread and mayonnaise than Mike and Mike somehow. But that that has been the sustenance in the morning, and some models you just won't shake up. I was just at a panel at Maryland. Kevin Sheehan was there and talking about how 980 has actually surprisingly been able to sustain themselves in terms of their audience. Whatever it is about radio, Zyron, like radio guys want their radio. I don't think radio was ready for Michael and Jamel in that time slot. I think it's a brilliant idea, but I'm not surprised it doesn't fly because if there, and I have to guess here, I don't have Nielsen in front of me or any of that. Sure. If I had to guess what medium has probably stayed the same over time in oh, terms of their definitely audience. definitely sports radio. Right. Just not just their older. audience, but the demographics of the people doing it. I mean, sports radio is still overwhelmingly white and male. That is, I always call that the last frontier of like the good old yeah. boys club. So and it's also the best me. art. You've heard people say, I'm sure that, oh, sports, sports has become very left wing. The journalists are all left wing. They're anti-Trump, whatever. Every time people say that, I'm like, do you listen to sports radio? Do you not understand that that is a central hub of sports media? People don't get it. I, they don't, evidently. But I'm not surprised that doesn't happen. Now, I don't know how much you can pour into a podcast and make it viable i mean they already have their podcast his and hers i don't know if they've changed the name of it well, i can tell you from this podcast that uh <laughs> as i said i said this to monica last week i said the opportunity to earn hundreds of dollars a year is there for you there, on a podcast i, I do know. hundreds so, so to bring it all the way home i don't think that the undefeated is the only place but what i will say about the business 
is, to me, with aspirations, the national landscape, ironically, is saturated with black women right now. And I use saturated on purpose because when you think of saturated, you may think oozing. I think, no, all the available options are currently filled. And for whatever mm. reason, the powers that be see a Maria Taylor, who I think is phenomenal, love her, Taylor Rooks in New York, Carrie Champion, Jamel, um, Pam Oliver still doing her thing, and Christina Pink out in L.A. are like the first six that come to mind. But that's saturated in this day and age mm. in terms of you look at who's consuming. Plenty of room for white women, plenty of room for white men. I think brothers are on a rise lately as of late, but there's a quota in my mind mm. that, okay, we, we have our diversity play. It's done. We don't necessarily have to look for that so, anymore. So you basically feel like a baseball player in 1960, where yeah. it's like, okay, it's quote-unquote integrated, mm -hmm. but with the kinds of quotas that uh, keep deserving people out. Mm -hmm. That's... Now, it also is a, is a tough business, I will, mm -hmm. and I, I sometimes vacillate between wanting to have this conversation about appearances and look and race and all of that versus it's just a saturated business. A lot of people want to do it. And there's that mm -hmm. fine line. But when I look at the opportunities that seem to magically appear from more folks with a lighter hue than me, longer hair, that may or may not be blonde, then I can't help but to think. I can't mm. help but to have that thought. Wow. And, and I don't blame you for having that thought. I also know that that that... that... I mean, for women, obviously, it becomes this like very different question in terms of how you present. Absolutely. And to be clear, how you present is different than how you look. These mm -hmm. are very different things. So, Monica, hearing your experiences, this is something that I wonder. What, what do you think about the idea of a book, about what it means to be a black woman in the sports media industry? Something where like, you could have a chapter written by each of the people that you named before. And so it would be like a eight, nine, 10 chapter book where people write about uh, the struggle and what it means in 2018. I think that's an incredible idea, but I would probably want to expand it, honestly, David. Well, talk to me. I think, I don't think what I've experienced in my business is unique. I think when you say minority, you're a minority in most of the fields that you go into outside of perhaps being a teacher in hmm. a school in the urban area. And mm -hmm. even then, who is your principal? So while I, those women that I mentioned are phenomenal and obviously sports broadcasting is my thing, I would want to expand it. Who's in the tech world? Because we got women, black women, black, black girl magic, shout out to us, in so many different genres and pursuing other careers. But I think the book idea of itself is phenomenal. Mm. We'll be back with our interview in just a moment, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. Okay. Let me hit on some sports talk. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I did want to get some of that, but let, let's, get, let's get on some sports talk. All right, I'm going to read this little intro that I wrote just for this podcast. You see, I do work. It's not just let's turn on the mics and yip. <laughs> so let me read this, and then I just would love to get your thoughts on the reaction. Okay. Let's start with what's going on with college basketball, which may turn out to be the biggest story in college basketball ever or something we won't even be talking about in a week. We got the FBI involved. If you ask for miracles, dear, I give you the FBI. 
So they got their investigation to College of Basketball. So last Friday, you got these two Yahoo writers, Pat Forty and Pete Thamel. They published the contents of spreadsheets that the FBI took from the office of former NBA agent Andy Miller. Now this stuff is as stinky as the gutter economy that the NCAA operates with. Um, This is as stinky as the gutter economy that the NCAA operates with. We now know that the FBI has wiretaps and witnesses that suggest dozens of high-profile basketball programs and players could be charged by the NCAA with being ineligible and at worst having coaches or other school employees arrange payments. And we're talking Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky, USC, Alabama, Texas, and many others who could find themselves NCAA ineligible. Who knows? And already Louisville, you know, their 2013 title apparently now no longer exists. It didn't happen. You know, magically, no one knows. It just disappeared into disappears. the ether. What makes me mad about that is I would have won all my pools that year. I had Michigan winning it all. I was just like, oh man, and they that were, is a super bummer. Yeah, it is a super bummer. So, so this is where we are with the NCAA. As someone who was part of this NCAA world, I ask you, what is your take on this? Where does this story go? It, does this spell the beginning of the end of the NCAA, or do you think we might end with the NCAA actually being a stronger institution when this is done? I think stronger may be the wrong word. I do not think it's going to ultimately be the demise. I think the NCAA still makes too much money, and there is this idea that you need some sort of governing body. I think what we end up looking at more in depth is this the idea of players being paid a cost-of-living expense. Because when I was going through the numbers through the Yahoo report, I played between that 2000 what was it, 2010, 2017 window where we just had that settlement salt. Right. I'm getting kicked like 2-5, I think. But I've got teammates who are getting like 7-5. And so to me, I'm like, oh, well, that's the settlement money that we're getting back on some of these. Now, there are obviously much larger... Can you explain a little bit what that means? Like 2-5, 7-5, and the uh, settlement money? Give so us some background. the NCAA settlement is... I want to say... I'm, I might be messing stuff. I want to okay. say it was the kids at Northwestern that launched this thing. They do the NCAA for... A piece of the pie in terms of what was able to be made, generated for men's and women's basketball and football over between 2010 and 2017. I honestly had let it slip me. I got the letter in the mail. I was like, oh, this is nothing. My homegirl called and was like, did you request your money? And she was like, are you serious? <laughs> so anyway, if you played in that window of time, you go in, you call up the NCAA, you get your eligibility number, plug it in the computer. It tells you whatever your piece of the pie was during that time. Um, and so we're getting this retroactive payment at it's some point. It's $250. Minus 2,468 a, a year. No, just one lump sum. Oh, one lump sum. That's my total. But like okay. my teammate who was there all four of her years fell in that 2010, 2017. She's getting close to 7,500. Okay. So that is a small example of what the NCAA has a piece of that they could share with their athletes. And then I know like the A-10 does a cost of living benefit for their athletes. The Atlantic 10 conference. Yes. The Atlantic 10 conference. And it comes through, it's from the conference, but the SAC, which is the student athletic association committee was a large part of negotiating how that would be determined. And so they've sort of deducted what it would cost a kid to live on their campus and in that area and how they can sustain their experience to make them to allow them to have a decent life. It also is kind of lumped in that with that conversation of now I think parents can get flown to the NCAA tournament legally through the school, all of that good stuff. So I think what happens here is the NCAA has to ask why. Why do we have this underground farm system? And if you can answer that question and find a solution, then we move forward. Now, will there be people that always are willing to break a rule? For sure. But I think you can step on a lot of this 
if you get out ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the NCAA is trying to do. I think there's a very interesting parallel between what we're talking about and some of this rhetoric from Donald Trump about guns and arming teachers. We were talking about this before the show. Because the NCAA gets to position itself in perpetuity. Unless the demand is to burn the whole thing down, which to me is a very reasonable demand about the NCAA, they get to, in perpetuity, say, like, hey, we need stronger enforcement because these things take place. Like, we actually need to have more of a role in this. This shows why you need the NCAA. As long as they're coaches like Sean Miller caught on tape talking about paying out six figures to high school players, that only proves that the NCAA is so necessary. And that, to me, just speaks so to, to the corruption of the NCAA. I mean, Mark Emmert, the head of it, he makes over $2 million a year. And in this particular case, based on some of these sheets, that spreadsheets from this former agent, Andrew Miller, um, one of the things that you see is that some of these players are paid two grand? Yeah. Four grand? Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but that is not life-changing money, no matter how poor... Some of them 200? Yeah. David Tigabu, my producer, is like, some of them 200 bucks. I mean, this is so crazy to me because I'm old enough to remember the 1980s when players, like, there was once a six-figure bribe to a high school kid and their family to come. Like, that's like life-changing money. This is, I mean, my goodness. This is buying somebody a couple of dinners. Right. You know, this is not, and it's really disturbing to me that they will demonize now a whole new group of players for being a part of this. And the NCAA will say, you see, this is why you need us as an enforcement body. And the, the guns thing, to me, the comparison is, like, no matter how horrific the school shooting is, the response by Trump and his NRA allies is always, well, you just need to arm the other side more. You just need more guns. So That's it's crazy. like if every problem is a, is a, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if, if all you have is, like, guns as a solution then that's all you're going to offer no matter what. In this case, the NCAA, it's just like more enforcement, more enforcement. That's the solution. When you can say, well, maybe the solution is breaking the cycle of this kind of gutter economy and letting play. I mean, it doesn't have to be like automatically throw the gates wide open. That's sometimes people say like, oh, so you just want them paid millions of dollars to play NCAA ball. And it's like, no, not saying that, saying very concretely the NCAA makes billions of dollars more now than they did 20 years ago because of these TV contracts. How do you make sure the players get their share of that? Absolutely. I agree. I agree with you 100%. And I don't I don't think that the whole thing gets burned down because while this is a hot topic, there are still 17 other varsity sports the NCAA regulates. And if we really go into the numbers of those listed in this report, while it's certainly damning, there's still so many other college basketball players. So. Yeah. We're, everybody's not getting forty grand, two grand, two hundred dollars, even for that matter. So, this, while it is a a nasty sore on the situation, it is not indicative of the entire thing. Can I say that with a straight face? <laughs> you know, I want to ask you if you think this is going to affect March Madness. And before you say no, because I know that's where you're going to go, um, I just want you to consider this before uh, before you say. This is the first March Madness that I can remember where we could be looking at teams like Michigan State and be saying to ourselves, all right, this team could be banned, found ineligible, whatever. Like in real time, it's not like the sort of thing where it's abstract, like we're watching Kentucky and you'd be like, oh, they're going to win it all unless they get busted. 
or something like that. This is like tons of programs in real time. We're looking at them and being like, yeah, this could all be farcical because they could win it all, cut the net, have their one shining moment. And within six months, it'll, the banners will be taken down. Do you think that'll affect people's viewing habits or enjoyment of the tournament? Or you think it's that insulated from Have this? you ever done Vegas during March Madness, Dave? Once. See, I've never done it. Once. So I'm asking you, do you think that it'll affect people's viewing habits? Not that. I mean, I but that, that, that's like the mecca of the hardcore, though. So, I, so that hardcore, I think, has a well amount of seasoning across the country in terms of people that are consumed. So one, viewing habits, no. I don't think anything changes. In fact, if there were to be more interest, just to see who's going to broach the topic on the broadcast and who can do it most eloquently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two, I'm going to go with the Kevin Ware thought on this one. Kevin Ware, who was on the 2013 Louisville Championship team, who's people are going to be like, who's Kevin Ware? And I'll just say, whose leg memorably yes. shattered during the NCAA tournament. And then you get the picture of Rick Pitino and his son with him in the hotel room, giving him a basketball, and you're just sort of like, wow. Yeah. That's pretty symbolic. It's when the Louisville banner or championship had to be vacated, Ware tweeted out, we still got these rings. So... I think this March Madness goes on. It's a conversation, but nothing really stops. There's still too much money to be made. If Michigan State, whoever is involved in this FBI probe, wins and ultimately has it reclaimed, the championship just won't exist like the 2013 Mm -hmm. championship. But I think we go on as if we're just dealing with a new norm the rest of this particular season. Now, your world has been on the women's side of the game as a player, obviously, and at the high, the highest levels, do you think any of this is going to affect the women's game? Do you think any of this exists in the women's game? I did have someone tell me that it existed a little bit at her school, not to this degree, but there's the booster handshake was a thing. I mm. never had that experience. I think as the women's game grows in popularity and competitiveness, it would not surprise me if this exists on some much, much, much smaller level. Mm-hmm. But in general. You're the first pick in the WNBA, you're going to make 60 grand. So what agent is going to give you 40 grand to come play in college? Right, right. And we are talking about the agents. That's an important part of this. It's so interesting now that I'm listening to radio and people talk about the agents. I don't know if they mean sports agents or FBI agents because it's like a competition (laughs) over which agents are going to decide what happens here. I'll tell you this. It's the incursion of the FBI into this that makes it a much different story than your typical scale. I don't know how I feel that day like I'm almost we don't have other things to worry about man you're 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 never gonna hear me cape for the FBI I'm still salty over sending letters to Dr. King telling him to kill himself Uh, so so I don't I don't go anywhere on the FBI rather than saying yeah this would somehow be better if you were not involved the interesting thing about it though is and I've heard other commentators speak about this this isn't an original thought is that we could be talking about big-time coaches who have now violated federal law, which Mm. means actual jail time, Mm. which means flipping on people. And then you don't know how high it goes. That could be flipping on other coaches. Like imagine if you are a big time coach, but you started out as an assistant to an even bigger time coach. And you want to talk about how you learned how this rolls or on agents or what have you. And remember the first person who flips always gets the best deal. And I don't think any of these people who were involved in this, no matter how shady, I don't think for one second that Sean Miller was like, 
<laughs> I'm breaking federal law. I'm Tony Soprano, you know. Like I think I'm I'm do I'm doing like racketeering, you know, basically. It's like I think he's thinking, yeah, I'm I'm skirting NCAA law, but everybody does it. Right, which is what Patino essentially said when everything hit the fan with him. Exactly. Like he was playing by the rules whether they're written or unwritten. Shit. All right. So that's the NCAA story. Let's get to what's happening with the Dallas Mavericks, the other story in my NBA world, which is sometimes obsessive, the way I feel about the NBA. So you've got this Sports Illustrated investigative report on allegations of sexual misconduct by Dallas Mavericks employees, and it's led Mavericks owner Mark Cuban to hire lawyers to conduct an investigation. And at the heart of this is Terdamer Useri, who worked under Mark Cuban from 2000 to 2015. I mean, the allegations against him just make him look like someone who created an unsafe working environment for female employees. There was another person who's a Mavs beat reporter who was unable to travel to Canada because of, of uh, pleas that he had done admitting to violence against women. I mean, I mean, we're talking about employees who part of their human resources agreement was that they couldn't be alone with female employees. It sounds so ugly. And Mark Cuban is basically saying he knew nothing about it. He's trying to get out in front of it. I mean, this is a wild story. And big shout out before I ask for your thoughts to John Wertheim and Jessica Luther, who's been a guest on this show and a friend to the show who broke this story. Shout out to you, Jessica. Couldn't be prouder here at the Edge of Sports. But let me throw it to you and get your thoughts on this. Like, like, what do you do with this? I mean, Adam's, I mean, there are a couple of things that shine really brightly for me right now. The first is that Adam Silver has shown himself to be someone who wants to get out front on political issues that are outside the NBA you know, to a degree. So it's like you've got the anti-trans bathroom law in North Carolina. That's something outside the league that could affect the league. So he's out in front on that. Players speaking out about police brutality. That's outside the league, but it affects the league. He's out in front on that. This is inside the league. This is the equivalent of the horror movie, The Killers Inside the House. He's got to do something serious about this. Now, what's it going to be? What What would be the closest thing we have to precedent? Would it be the Clippers? Sterling, Sterling would be the precedent. And, I mean, but Mark Cuban, who... The Mark Cuban, who was the only person who, during the Sterling thing, the only owner who went public and said, the thing about this that upsets me is not that I support Donald Sterling, it's that this creates a precedent where our teams could get taken away. Dun, 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 dun. Oh my goodness. This one's loaded for me. and I So I need you to hear me, Dave. And now, Please. if I say this wrong to the audience or uh, David, help me formulate what I'm trying to say. We're in this weird place where... So I want to use the word morality, where commissioners, Mark Emmert, NCAA, um, Adam Silver, are in this position where they have to... Be the morality police. Thank you. Punish things that are like moral issues. Mm -hmm. I get it. The Mavs represent the NBA as a whole. These guys should not have been on your staff. But as I was reading, and the Sports Illustrated does a great job with the reporting, I was really like, whoa, is this, this is awful. But I'm also like, how many people in regular jobs have checkered pasts? Like, can you fire some, what, where are we on this? Can I fire mm-hmm. you because, like, so I... So it's the clear line is, are you making uh, women feel unsafe at right. the workplace? So in this instant, it's spilling into the work, workplace. 
Right. Um, I, I have a large issue with the HR department, who was a non-factor in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Usury is no longer there, neither is this particular beat writer. I think that you have to hold Mark Cuban responsible. How? I'm not 100% sure. But how do you do it? Yeah, he was just fined $600,000 for just for talking tanking, about yeah. tanking. What do you, and you, you can't, what do? You can do? you take the team from him? You can't take the team from him. Uh, well, I mean, technically, sure he can. I don't think he will by any stretch of the imagination. And it would need a lot of support among the other owners, which would mean... I mean, that's the one thing that people don't understand about Donald Sterling is that I'll maintain to this day that, um, first of all, Donald Sterling was loathed by other owners, first and mm-hmm. foremost. Second of all, his reputation for racism in terms of how he did business, in terms of housing, and how he treated the people who worked for him. And players talk. And so when you're bringing your girlfriends to the locker room after the game and pointing at your players and saying, look at those bodies, you know, no other mm-hmm. owner behaves that mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. in in sports and or at least that I've ever heard I mean it's it's but it's it's a stunning thing and I was writing about Donald Sterling and his racism for years before this thing broke everybody knew about it um I'll always be convinced he's never asked the question that he was protected by David Stern and it bothers me so much that Stern's never been asked why remember Silver had just gotten on the job and if Silver hadn't been on the job believe me David Stern would have been asked at every turn Okay, so he said racist things about Magic Johnson on tape. Why is that uh, more offensive to you than being sued for the largest uh, housing discrimination, yeah, yeah. having to settle for the largest amount in the history of the United States? Like, what, what, what about that? Mm-hmm. How does that make your league look? So Stern never got to answer that question. I think what Cuban is trying to do is, and I don't know how popular Cuban is with other owners, but he's definitely, I feel like this generation of NBA owners come from this kind of tech new money, even frat bro kind of atmosphere. I think a lot of them are scared for the kind of atmosphere that they may have fostered 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, being, and then getting retroactively punished. That's real. And that's what this case is too. So, and I also think the other difference that we have to keep in mind between Sterling and Cuban is we've got Sterling, yeah, Sterling, we've got Sterling doing the action. Here, Cuban is like, the owner of a cesspool, essentially. Yes. So, for me, punishments, I don't know if there's an internal investigation and we have to clean out the entire house in terms of Dallas Mavs personnel across the board. We have to really evaluate that and then you're put on some sort of, not suspension, house arrest. I mean, we're watching you for a couple of years to see how things evolve. But the other part of this, though, David, that is so different than Sterling is you had Sterling, the owner, talking about the players. Mm-hmm. The owner in this one is sort of a third wheel talking about women in the workplace. And I'm all for Me Too, Time's Up, all that. I think we're in a brave new world. But how long does that stick? Chris Paul isn't saying, or Dirk Nowitzki, or Dennis Smith isn't saying, I'm not playing for this organization because of the mm-hmm. way they treat women. This is buzzing. Nobody's saying it, which is another thing you know worth, what I mean? worth raising. So what There's are we... Been... I mean, something needs to be done, but if this fizzles out, I wouldn't be surprised either. This is something that actually... and, I, and I'm. A little bit, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit bothered by it because I feel like the NBA players and a lot of times NBA branding has made a big deal since Colin Kaepernick took its knee to be like, we're the league that respects outspoken players. We're the league that believes that when you speak out, you make our community stronger. Nike doesn't add to, to show their support and all this stuff. And, you know, they can talk back to Donald Trump and God bless him for doing shit. So, but when the killer's inside your own house... 
they're not saying anything. Now, who's going to stand up? And, and you know, I'll tell you why it particularly bothers me is that the one bright spot of this whole story is the women of the Mavericks saying the only place I felt safe and was treated like a professional room. was in the locker room. Right. That sounds like right on because you know a lot of people saw the headlines of this story and were like, uh-oh, those Mavericks players. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the opposite of the case. And frankly, that's been my experience with NBA players also is that these are extremely professional people in terms of how they deal with folks. And they take maybe that wasn't the case in the NBA 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. I just in the present tense... These are some forward-thinking, very, very fascinating people who are trying to play some three-dimensional chess. It's like Paul George said over all, the All-Star Weekend when the whole thing hit with Fox and LeBron in the comments. I mean, they are fathers, husbands, brothers, business owners, members of a community, and so they get it. I mean, we take for granted that they get to play a game and make an awesome living out of it, but they are also people who love other people, who have yeah. relationships with other people, and that can't be taken for granted. So I think whatever, I think Silver has to come down hard in this case, but I don't expect there to be any sort of management changes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think so either, unless Mark Cuban does something that, from a PR or damage control perspective, is just a disaster. And it looks like he's doing everything right. But if he made, say, the choice to say something like, like, screw these bees, you know, mm -hmm. we're doing our thing. Like, I think things are that on edge that if he plays this wrong from a PR perspective, this could get very bad very quickly. And he seems way too smart for that. But that's where we get to the other part of Mark Cuban that I wanted to ask you about. Because if, if this, say, this happened with my Washington Wizards and Ted Leonsis, like the exact story, mm -hmm. and Ted Leonsis came forward and was like, yo, I, I, I delegate all of that. I'm horrified as you are. I would give Leonsis the benefit of the doubt. Mark Cuban, and even though that may not be true, I don't know enough about Leonsis, now he does business to know that, but on the basics, I would give him the benefit of the doubt. Mark Cuban has gone out of his way, whether you're talking about Shark Tank, whether you're, I mean, he brands himself as the person who's got it all on but point. But can you punish him for that? Like, if, if this is the Wizards, what happens? Is Leonsis still have to pick up the bill on this large mishap under his watch? I like, think barely. Make... I think the fact that it's Cuban makes this all the more... I mean, Mark Cuban's the guy who runs out onto the court. Mark Cuban... I mean, it's it just the idea that Mark Cuban didn't know anything. To me, it strains credulity to think that Mark Cuban didn't know anything. I don't believe him. There's a part of me that's somewhat inclined to give it like a 30% truth. Just because it's, it's so outlandish. But then again, I don't know how long it took for these women to assert themselves. And here, though, we get to the issue of what is sometimes referred to as um, being a bystander, which is what I believe, that he knew this stuff would happen. But I don't care if you're Mark Cuban or if you're my producer, David Tegelboo. It takes courage to stand up when other men are acting in a toxic and manner. we it have takes just courage. arrived we've also just arrived at this season of stand up and take courage sure we've just gotten there i mean me too is still new women are finding themselves emboldened and able to speak up to themselves which i love but we just got here and i think mm, i don't want to go there um mm, i'm gonna do this anyway okay so this is a little bit of a side sidebar speaking of just getting there People of color in this country have not just gotten there. And so for me, Me Too, Time's Up is all very, very, very loaded. I am proud that you 
found the confidence. But just look at our societal totem pole. Mm-hmm. We're now at, on the top layer, white women have, we're, time's up, we're done with this. There are certain innate opportunities that you have that don't trickle down to the rest of us. So mm-hmm. this new age of Me Too, Time's Up, We've Just Arrived, that everybody being accountable, it's still new to the mainstream majority in America to me. And it speaks so much that it was this was started by a black woman, mm-hmm. Tarana Burke, and it was started, what, like eight years ago or something? Like a significant ten, ten years ago. Ten years ago. Was that long ago. Oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. And... And it only gets currency when it hits Hollywood and when it hits white women. And it, that's something that I think we, there's nothing wrong with saying that and keeping it in mind. Because I think by putting that forward, you've seen a lot of amazing Time's Up and uh, Me Too work that's been done like among farm workers yep, yep. and office workers. And you know that's going to be disproportionately people of color. But it's going to take the pressure to say if it's good enough... For you, it has to be good enough for us. Absolutely. Um, and then the, 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 it's a tough issue. You see the same issue. You've probably seen people write about this with this issue of um, this amazing student activism around gun violence. Mm-hmm. And people act like this is new, mm-hmm. as if there haven't been sincere and serious and widespread movements in the black community around gun violence yep. for yep. decades or if you're talking about young activists, you think about the ways that the Black Lives Matter activists are demonized. Mm-hmm. And while a lot of these folks are heralded, it's it's tricky. It's, it's very tricky. It's tricky because you want to offer support, but while, while also not biting your tongue about real criticisms. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a Tom Thomas says, he says, I'll never bite my tongue because um, I just don't want it to bleed. Yeah. And now a quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, all right, so we, we made some headway there. Again, a shout out to Jessica Luther for breaking this story. The other issue I really wanted to talk to you about, and I know this is a sports show, but this is the issue that's animating so many discussions is I need to know what you think about Black Panther. I will say right away that I have seen this movie once, and you have seen it how many times? Three times. Three times. It's been out. Oh, David Tigler has seen it two times. <laughs> it's been out basically at the time we're doing this podcast uh, nine days. Yep. Ten days. So that's 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 pretty wild. So first of all, I guess the big question is why have you gone back to see it again and again? What, what about it speaks to you? The first time I went to see it, I was with my homegirls, and I think it was just the pure lore of it, right? You want to take in the cinematography. I want to look at these phenomenal black actors on the main screen who are not cussing, fussing, prostituting, selling drugs, who are kingly, right? Um, the second time I wanted to go, and I kind of wanted to wrap my mind about what I might write about the movie or critique. The third time I actually took my godchild because I was pleasantly wow. surprised with how sort of kid-friendly. I mean, I think she grimaced a little bit at the challenge, but I did want her to take in the black bodies again, which I think is a subliminal thing that maybe we'll discuss a couple years from now. She loved the music and she liked the costumes. Um, 
So my takeaway from it, I was so happy when I left the theater. Mm-hmm. I was so happy. I thought it was very well done. Well, what I about thought... it made you happy? I mean, there have been films before that have had black superheroes. There have been films before that have celebrated the black body. There have even been films in very recent years, and it's very new, that have, but that have had black cinematographers who actually know how to photograph black skin. So it's, it's almost like Roberto Clemente, who wasn't necessarily the first black Latino player, but he was the first superstar. And that's why people think he should get statues, even if he wasn't the first. Is it that kind of thing? No, I'm gonna say no, and you have to correct me. I'm not a huge movie buff, but when you talk about cinematography and things that have happened in the last few years, I'm thinking, what comes to mind? I think Moonlight was robbed of its moment, although they still <laughs> did win the award. I'm thinking 12 Years a Slave. I Selma. Think Selma. I think Girls... Which was robbed. Which was robbed. Yeah. I think Girls Trip, that's four in the last, in the recent. Um, I, I, I'll go Creed, Ryan Coogler mm-hmm. again. And Fruit, and then you gotta go Fruitvale Station. Okay, so amazing. of those movies we just lifted, Dave, Fruitvale Station for me left me with a heavy heart. Selma yes. left me with... A heavy heart, although I appreciated what my folks went to. Still have not seen 12 Years a Slave because I have to really get prepared to watch stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, what was the other two we mentioned? Creed was cool. Um, Gr- I have Girl's not Trip. seen Moonlight. Girl's Trip was super fun. Oh, you should see Moonlight. I should see Moonlight. Oh, I gotta put on my list. I just, again, I'm it's not a super so duper movie beautiful. buff. Okay, but just... So, go. what I'm saying is, the things that we have been able to capture the spotlight are also aligned with some weight. Mm-hmm. Pain. Yeah. And so for me, being able to walk away from a theater happy mm-hmm. and have watched black people come up and not have to necessarily come through, it was a different sensation. Now, this movie, though, also wasn't without, though. It's yes. pain. Yes. And that's seen in the dichotomy, of course, of uh, Black Panther, uh, T'Challa, mm-hmm. and Killmonger. Yep. And so I ask you, because there, there's actually been some interesting writing that's happened of mm-hmm. people of black academics who are not feeling the movie because they're saying, like, why is Killmonger the bad guy, basically? And they're exploring that whole thing. And so I'm just curious if you've read any of those critiques, what your thoughts were on Killmonger. And I have so many more questions, but please. So the second time I saw the the movie, the first time I saw the movie when Aoki says Americans, that stuck with me, right? The second time I saw the movie, Aoki and Nikki are having the conversation of protecting the throne versus saving the throne. That was my moment mm-hmm. in the second movie. The third movie, I was kind of making sure my god kid was okay, so I didn't really pay attention. But the conversation that Black Panther is not for Black America did not surprise me, and I don't think that it's a far stretch. I'm going to separate the two, though, in that I enjoyed the movie, and it, it will be one that I can just throw on and it'll be cool with. Mm-hmm. But that conversation that it's not for Black Americans, I totally get that. I totally get that. You get why people are writing articles saying Absolutely. that. Like, now, I'm not well-versed in Pan-Africanism and all of those such things, but I totally get that. Because for me, there were so many little digs at what is America. Mm-hmm. I mean, she talks about guns being primitive when they're shooting at the vibranium car. She does her little dig at Americans. Um, although I loved our CIA agent whose name I can't really think of. I mean, he was sort of the off-kilter and not really didn't belong. Guy. That's one of the critiques where it's like, and this is where I think people, I, I disagree with the critiques. I'm much more inclined to celebrate this movie. But when people say the critique about like, oh, so a CIA guy gets to be the hero, I'm sort of like, you're missing the point because... A, it's a Marvel movie. And for Shuri goodness is the sakes. hero, for the record. Shuri is the hero. Yeah. Oh, Shuri is, is one of also like five or six heroes mm-hmm. that you'd put ahead of the CIA agent. And that's my other point about it, is that the CIA agent is a small, ancillary, 
character at the margins who does one cool thing and then giggles. And so, to me, this is how black actors in these movies have been depicted forever. So I saw it as transgressive. Like they made the CIA agent the black sidekick. I felt like the CIA agent could have been a person of color, just not black. That was my thought. Yeah. They could have left him out altogether for me. I mean, yeah. we're talking about years of like the goofy side black character, right? Um, so I hear you on that and that's a good way to look at it. But I also was like, no, oh, we could have just gone all the way and left all the left Oh, yeah, there's no CIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Um, you're, right. Um, you're, it wouldn't have suffered for it. No. So I, I enjoyed the movie. I understand that the it's not for black Americans. But I'm also not one that got into the, all the theories about The Lion King. Now, I was a kid then. But there's always theories on a movie is what I'm getting at. Oh, sure. Um, but I don't think that those are a stretch. For me, one of the strongest things... Um, to write about for me w- would be women, the women, the role that the women play in the movie, because that conversation between Oyoki and Nakia to me is so representative of what we've dealt with in our communities in terms of which conversation um, right after Killmonger takes the throne. Mm-hmm. Nakia is ready to go and fight. Oyoki's like, I have to stand by my throne. Um, I love this country, so I'm staying here. And she's like, well, if you love your country, you have to try to save your country. And so then mm. Oyoki, the queen and Shuri head off up into Mbaku's territory, territory while Oyoki stays. Um, for me, that is the issue that I see so often in our communities. Like there's this idea of family that we want to save and that we still hold on true. But on the other hand, you have to look at what's in your hand and you have to deal in your reality. And I know for me so often, you know, the numbers of black men that are incarcerated are crazy. They're not where they should be as far as their families go. So do you continue to cape for what we want or do you have to look at what's in your hand? Mm. Um, so that was a moment that really struck me in the movie. Mm. The thing that I find very interesting in terms of the political fallout, and you see this often when a piece of popular culture comes up that everybody tries to then uh, make theirs, mm-hmm. is like, for example, like I, I'm just so people know this, you know, I'm a Jewish guy who writes a lot of uh, critiques and of, of the way Israel treats Palestinians. And I've noticed that there have been people um, who are pro Israel who say, hey, Black Panther is like a movie about Israel in that. Wakanda is Israel and they're trying to maintain themselves in the face of these outside threats and Killmonger is like basically like like me Mm -hmm. like the outside Jew from America who's increasingly Mm. critical of how they operate now what's so um, empty about this critique is you think of the number of African migrants uh, who have been denied entry into Israel and the amount of racism against people from sub-Saharan Africa Mm -hmm. in Israel including like destroying their blood when they try to give it because it um, but that's not nothing because they they're like oh it must be infected with AIDS. But like, but like even beyond that, like treating people as, as subhuman. And there have mm-hmm. been demonstrations by African migrants, refugee camps treated terribly. So so it bothers me so much. But it's interesting that they're trying to grab a piece of it. There's another argument that like this movie is in its weird way pro-Trump because again Wakanda wants to put up its borders and this argument that they Whoa. want to stay out. No. And boo, Killmonger is and Killmonger is Black Lives Matter. No! Uh, I know, oh, no, no, that's what I'm saying about people. No. Everybody's trying to get their peace. Oh, I hate that one. No, boo. I hate Never them. Again. I, 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 I hate, hate them. Oh my gosh, no. And no. I'll tell you why I hate those arguments is that it makes you think that they only saw three quarters of the movie. Yeah. Because part of the uh-huh. damn point of the movie is that even though Killmonger dies, he lives. Yep. Because he changes their approach mm-hmm. to the black community on a pan-Africanist level. Yep. Like, he truly makes them think critically. One of my teammates, and I didn't think about this, she was like, I mean, the whole point of the movie for me was if black people stuck together from the beginning, we would have never had no issues. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a thought. I didn't think of it mm-hmm. that way. I mean, there, there's something for everybody. I think the movie was well done. I applaud all of the cast, the directors, 
Um, and like you said, they anybody wants to pull something out and make it a nuance and apply it to their cause, they can figure out a way. Um, but Oyoki is by far my favorite character. Loved mm-hmm. her. I, remember our discussion, I'm sorry, about whether Michael Jordan was still the show from Chadwick Boseman? I didn't, I didn't think so. I think they played their Interesting. characters. You don't, think, you don't think Michael B. Jordan stole it from Chadwick Boseman? I, you're right that they played their characters, and Killmonger is almost by definition a juicier character. Yeah. But like my friend Damian Smith, like when I said to him last night, I said, hey, did you see Black Panther? Did you love it? He just looked at me with this huge smile, and he went like this. He said, hi, auntie. <laughs> I loved, oh, that was my favorite. And so it's like, if you give somebody <laughs> lines, favorite. if you give somebody lines that juicy, they're yeah. going to steal a movie. But I don't think, yeah. so who do you, eh, I, from the, it was the women for me. That's- well, I wanted to ask you this question because something that you said to me before you saw the movie mm-hmm. is that you wanted to look at the movie and think about about hair, mm-hmm. black women and hair. Mm-hmm. And I thought about you when I was watching the movie because there's a scene where uh, the weave is yes. weapon. Yes, the wig is weapon. <laughs> I should say. Um, how, how did you think? What, what did you think about that aspect of the representation? The of black line women? before that, as they're walking into this secret pool, whatever it was. What, the South Korean casino? Yeah, the South, South Korean casino. When <laughs> of course. When Oyoki says, I want this thing off my head, I feel ridiculous. I was like, yes! Yeah! Because and I, I think this is probably also part of why this movie made me so happy because there is this I'm enough thing, mm. right? Like, now granted, the army and as a general, most women aren't walking around with bald head. I get it. But there's this I'm enough. I'm glorious in, the, in this body that I have. As I am, these lips, this, this, the whole thing. And so I thought that the movie was very representative. But I also don't think, I think anything other than what we saw in terms of hair would have messed with the authenticity to me. Wow. That's, that, that's interesting to put. Dave Tigabu, I know that you, when I said to you that Monica and I were going to talk about Black Panther, this is my producer, David Tigabu, um, you, you were like, I, could, I can always do with some more Black Panther discussion. And you've seen it twice. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of it. And t- can you tell everybody also just a little bit about who you are and what your background is, ethnicity-wise? Because I think that perspective is very interesting. Well, uh, David Tigabu, producer here at Edge of Sports Podcast. Um, yeah, you know, I saw the film twice. Um, so to answer Dave's question, my ethnicity is my parents are both Ethiopian, so I'm African. And so watching the film and, and kind of seeing that tension there between black Americans and Africans, but also this like larger message of Pan-Africanism and unity really stuck with me because I, I thought politically that was really smart. And it surprised me that a Marvel film, a suit like a mainstream Disney Marvel film would have that kind of message. Uh, but even just I, like, I feel like there were four, like four components to the Black Panther. There was like the hype leading up to the film. Mm-hmm. There was the movie going experience. There was like the movie itself and everything that you could take from it. And then like, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, there was sort of the, you know, think piece culture that came after it. Right. All these different sort of takes. What, what are we to make of isolationism as a political mm-hmm. construct? Um, I thought all these themes were really interesting. The film was really well done as a producer, somebody that's worked in production for a while. I've, I appreciated the cinematography, even the costume design. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ruth Carter. Yes, Hampton. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> did all the um, early Spike Lee films. And, you know, I thought that the, the, the cinema, I guess Rachel Morrison did the cinematography and she did Mudbound. And I'm like, yo, keep giving her roles because she's really, mm-hmm. really good. But I, 
I had some critiques of the film that probably line up with, with some of what's been talked about already, but I thought just like as a larger production, like, it was really, really dope. I thought one of the things that demands more discussion and is fascinating is like what would rule by Killmonger then have actually looked like? Because this to me, it gets to this point of um, liberation from above or liberation from below. Because to me, when I'm out watching this, to me, Killmonger is making an amazing point when he's like, in the late 60s, brothers were getting it together, organizing, you did nothing. I'm like, wow, that's powerful. Imagine if the Panthers, and I, and I was hoping he'd throw in like something like, if he'd said something like, I'm doing this for Huey, I'm doing this for Fred Hampton, mm -hmm. I'm do, I mean, I'm, I, I'm well, doing this for Elaine Brown. My, my brain would have exploded. Oh my gosh. Would have exploded. What he's talking about in the present tense in 2018, it's like, you wonder, like, what does... Wakanda then do with Killmonger in charge. You're going into countries and it's a dangerous game when you're trying to liberate people who say might not want to be liberated or don't want to be under foreign rule. I mean, then that that's what um, empire is. And people tend to feel disenfranchised and humiliated by empire. And this is, so it's like, I thought the end was very satisfying because it felt like they were taking in what Killmonger was arguing and being like, okay, how do we aid local institutions in Oakland? Like, how, we, how do we do the kind of grassroots work, almost the Kaepernick-esque work, to aid local institutions so they can thrive and build and people can uh, be their own, um, so people can be their own instrument of self-emancipation. It's interesting that you credit Killmonger with that. I credit that with Nakia. Interesting. I missed it as Killmonger's because I thought the approaches were so different. I mean, he was ready to go and start wars, essentially. I don't yes. know. I mean, we never got the grand play out in terms of the war dogs in Hong Kong, London, and New York being ready. But just to hand you this vibranium and go fix it, I don't think that's a smooth transition, shall right. we say. But Nakia, from the beginning, is telling... T'Challa, who I just thought he loves. Her. I think he like loves her in person though too. When you watch like Twitter and stuff. Anyway, um, when he's she's... totally in love with her. Do you think that's even a question? Like I think well, this is what T'Challa like... is is absolutely no. I mean Chadwick Boseman. Oh, oh my bad. Okay, like when okay. you watch them on their press tours, he's sort of he's like giggly. smitten with her. Like he he gazes <laughs> the way he gazes when he saw her off the truck in the movie. But anyway, um, she said to him, "I can't stay here. I found my calling." And so I credited her for more of that and then you know in hindsight good point dave i think as he's talking to his dad when he you know is re being recovering or whatever it, it comes together considering the monster that was created by his father's mistake but um it was definitely a vastly different approach than i think what killmonger would have offered and and can I ask you the things on killmonger's skin there were kills there were kills but are, is he Pricking himself with a knife with each kill. I was wondering, like, like I think it's a, I think it would be what is called a keloid in black households, which I've got plenty of, and it's just the way you you heal from like a scar. Oh wow! So like he probably, I don't think he would have been cutting himself. He could have been burning himself, like like with an yeah. eraser. But they were keloids. Up. Yeah, and that's actually that's frankly, what I would think, right, David? That's yeah. What I that's frankly one of the things I liked about the movie too is that I'm sitting there and thinking I'm getting about one half of this, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's okay. That, that this isn't made for me primarily. And one of the reasons I loved the movie was the audience of people I was sitting with. I mean, I was sitting with people who were... I, watched, I saw it the day it came out Friday at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. And that meant there weren't um, 
you know, like high school kids there and right. things like that. But there were a ton of people there who were in their 50s and 60s. Nice. And it was packed. And yeah, we were the only white folks in the theater and it was packed with folks who are either doing what we were doing, me and my friend Mike, which was playing hooky, right. or people who were retired. And people were showing up in Kenta cloth. Mm-hmm. People were showing up in, I'm not joking around, in black berets. Yep. No, and I, people so... were, were feeling it to the nth degree. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Drums. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what was the other thing that really, really got to me deeply was the number of political T-shirts. Yeah. Like people showed out in their political yeah. shirts. Yeah. I, I'm I am remiss. I do think I missed an opportunity. But interesting enough, and I don't know if David can jump in on this because. So what do you mean you missed an opportunity? I didn't. I just wore regular. Oh. Because, <laughs> and so, funny enough, so a group of my homegirls were going, and one of our friends is from hmm, Diana's from Ghana, maybe. Anyway, so you speak to the Kente cloth, all the garb, David. It was fantastic. I'm a black American. That's not authentic for me, right? So I was like, can I can I dress up? Like, is this also appropriation, but on a different level? So. Ironically, on the way there, we got into a conversation of the use of the word foreign. My friend felt sort of slighted by the use of it, and I was trying to explain to her that I've also been slighted by it, but on the opposite end of the spectrum for just being a black American and not having foreign ties per se. So for you, your family... Where's your friend from? Where's your friend? My friend's from Ghana. Okay. So, and she, after the movie, she was like, the accents were authentic. Like, she's like, that's legit. Like, they did a really good job. Except for Forrest Whitaker. She thought his was good. She thought Forrest Whitaker's was good. So anyway, Mm -hmm. to you... What what are are you offended on people dressing up but then maybe actually have no ties to Africa for real? What, what is that appropriation in your mind? Yeah, no, this is a debate that has gone on for a while. Um, I remember, I think it was like two two years ago during Afropunk, uh, mm. there were all these photos that had come out of black people wearing African garb, and uh, there were a couple people that had said something about how this was appropriation, and it had launched this like really big debate. Uh, between different groups of people about, you know, whether black people could appropriate mm-hmm. culture. Um, my own kind of perspective on it is I don't think it's appropriation. I do think if people are going to wear, you know, clothes of different cultures, I think there should be a sensitivity and an appreciation. Um, but the way that I see it, black Americans specifically, they might not, like, know where their ancestors came from, specifically in terms of what African country but they're still connected to Africa. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't see it as, Af- as appropriation. It's an appreciation of where you come from and trying to connect to your roots. I mean, that's the thing, is that it's a political question. It's an appropriation if one does not... Um, grasp the weight. Grasp the weight. And I would also say one to the politics either of, yeah. I'll say, pan-Africanism or, and this is an important one, internationalism. Because in the internationalism, one is important because... If I had to do it all over, obviously I would not wear a kente cloth <laughs> because that is appropriation. But if I had to do it over, would I have worn my, um, like, say, my anti-death penalty T-shirt that says the death nice. penalty is racist? Sure. Nice. Yeah, I wish yeah. I'd worn that. Yeah, which is, I guess you could call it my solidarity shirt, mm-hmm. my internationalism right. shirt. Right. You know, my I want to end racism because I don't want to grow up in a racist world shirt. You know, which is just like the basics of why people should take these movements seriously. Well, look. Monica, you've been such a joy to have on the show. Thank so you much so fun. much. Thank you. Did you enjoy it? I did. So this great. is podcasting. Podcasting 101. This is it. And, yo, from my producer, David Tigabu, I'm Dave Zirin. 
Thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember, you can always listen to back episodes of the Edge of Sports podcast, including a ton from several years ago with Monica's pops, Kevin McNutt, if you want to listen to that. Him insult me for an hour, which is always fun. Uh, you just got to go to edgesportspodcast.com. If you like the show, please leave a comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Please leave a rating. All that stuff does a big difference. If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you always can on Twitter, at Edge of Sports. Monica, what's your Twitter? McNutt Monica, M-C-N-U-T-T, regular Monica. There you go. Or you can contact us at Edge of Sports Pod. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Thank you to everybody out there who are our patrons. We appreciate each and every one of you. For David Tigabu producing this show, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>